The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. I've been doing some research on what's most important to business leaders, and I've heard three major themes. Number one, their employees are burned out and feel overwhelmed. Number two, they're concerned about customer retention. And number three, they want to address customer friction, whether it's controllable or not, but they need actionable results. As a result, I've created the 120-day Quick Start, a four-step program designed to go from current state assessment to specific strategies to get you actionable results in 120 days. If you want to make a quick impact, check out EmpoweredCX.com for more information. I'd love to talk to you. Like one second that we might be listening for, it's something like, well, thank you for being a XYZ customer at the end. Like really owning that ending, right? Well, hey, thanks for being, we'll say it's Bank of America. Thanks for being a Bank of America customer. If things went well. Now don't do that if it was like a, a struggle kind of conversation and it ends with that pat kind of like perky, like, oh, how nauseating, right? So, yeah. but listening for, so it's like a certain ending, but then it's that ending in context. Like how did the interaction go that that was the right thing to say or the wrong thing to say? Cause it might be, I am so sorry, Martha, that we couldn't solve this problem. I'm going to talk to my manager. I'll be back in touch with you within the hour. Well, is that is that going to be okay? Well, my guest on the show today is Martha Brooke, and Martha brings to us a little different um, discussion point, and that is we're going to be talking today around surveys. Uh, we've talked we've talked about metrics, measurements, different aspects of customer experience, and and the five core competencies, but um, we've all taken surveys. Today, we're going to get kind of underneath the hood and talk about why, how, what are the best practices? What are some big mistakes that people make? Why why don't they work sometimes? But before we do all that, let me welcome Martha. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's so great to have you uh, all the way. You are on the West Coast, correct? Uh, indeed. Portland, well, we say Oregon, but on the East, East Coast, it's Oregon. <laughs> have you noticed that? Yeah. It's, I'm always struck by that. Yes. I'm, I'm guessing you, you, would, you guys on the West Coast would know better. 
Uh, well, you know, we think we do, but <laughs> who really knows? Um, I'm from the East Coast originally, and but I've been in Seattle and Portland now for a very long time. I, I possibly half my life, but that's that's just too much to even consider. So, yeah, I'll let that just dangle out there. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much. We uh, we're going to get into some fun talk and try not to get too much too technical for uh, the people listening. But at the same time, there's just so much to talk about. Um, before we get we get into some real uh, deep dives into surveys and what's behind them and all all the things we we mentioned at the top. Can you share with us what led you into the world of scientific research um, and and what you do now? Sure, sure. Um, really, the motivation. So I started Interaction Metrics in 2004. So there was like a dinosaur crawling around Earth. I mean, this is a very, very <laughs> long time ago before customer experience was the phrase. Um, and um, there are really two two things that that led me into it and the first was uh, kind of self-serving there was a hole in the market there was a hole in the market for for rigorous scientific feedback um and the way interaction metrics as the name sort of implies started was it was a it was a deep dive into uh, the micro moments of customer service interaction. So it was all about interactions and putting metrics on interactions. I worked for a guy at Nike who said, Martha, you know, I don't care how we're doing right now with our customer service. What I care about is that I have a graph with an arrow pointing up, showing us where we're going and where we've been and where we are and where we will be, Right. And so it was all about really getting into um, objective, clear measurement of customer service. And that's and, and there's just a, quite simply a hole in the market for that service. Um, and then it broadened into, well, gosh, there are a lot of bad surveys. And, and companies were as interested in their customer service, if not a lot, a lot more interested in what customers had to say. So what customers and employees had to say. And so by 2008, we were well into customer feedback and layering in employee feedback, interviews, surveys, the whole bit. Um, so there was that one, like there was a need for this service, but the other is sort of what I call it the more the moral imperative argument. And that is, I think we're all, all we have is experience, Mark, right? Like that's all we are and ever will be is the sum of our experiences. And so to the extent that we're having good experiences, we're having good lives and we're paying that forward, right? Like if you and I have a good interaction, when that interaction ends, you're just going to be nicer to your your spouse. You're going to be, you, you might even like take the dog for a longer walk. I don't know. You're just, uh, and- Conversely, if we have a bad interaction, you're going to pay that forward too. Like, yeah. So, and this happens all the time between companies and customers, right? The the interactions are sometimes great, and you just get off the phone. You're like, oh, they solved my problem. Love them. Or I just waited in a phone queue for 30 minutes 
And then I got hung up on and I, rah, 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 right. So um, it's all, I guess, it's sort of a long-winded way of saying that experience is viral, right? It's absolutely viral. And so to the extent that I can help companies have better interactions with their customers and employees, I feel like I'm living out a sort of a meaningful life. Uh, you know, I'm living out a moral imperative to make the world just a little bit better. Yeah, I, I love the way you described it. it um, I was I was on someone else's podcast recently, and I, I think I used a very, very similar line of thought, which is what, the why we do what we do. And it is because, you know, what, what you just said is this whole pay it forward thing happens when you have an experience. You, As Lou Carbone said, you can't not not have an experience. Right. It's, he says something like, it's just a question of whether it's just completely random or you, you manage that experience. Um, and, uh, and so I love what you said. And we know that it is, it does impact lives. And um, the point I was, I was making when I was, was talking about it, and I, I think you'll agree, is that I think it's easy to under, underestimate during the course of a single day how many of these interactions we have that could influence our day. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what? How many do you think we have? Oh, I, I, I didn't. I didn't put a number on it, but I just, I just feel like we underestimate it. But if you've got some data, that would be interesting. I don't. I don't. I think it's because it's. I mean, it's it's a really um, interesting line of inquiry to pursue, right? Um, yeah. Because it's how now. How are we going? What What makes is is just hello, goodbye, enough to be an experience. Like how, at what point are we going to continue, consider an experience? And at what point do we say that's too small to even impact anybody's life? So it's a somewhat difficult matter to study, but yes, basically we live in the world of, like I say, all we have are our experiences of which many of them are interactions, right? Not all of them. We have experiences of I'm just watching the movie. It's not interactive. Um, but many of them are interactive. And it's like the cashier at the at Whole Foods, right? Like they, the cashier at Trader Joe's, sometimes I they put me in a good mood. Sometimes they don't put me in such a good mood. You know, it's the guy at the gas station. Do they screw on the, the the cap tight enough so that the engine light doesn't go on? Or do they like just kind of flim flam it on and, and then the engine light comes on? So whatever. It's all to say, um, yes, we, we live in this world of experience. Much of it is interactive and we want to make it as, uh, uh, you know, all good people want to make that as good as it can be for all of us. Well, well yeah. said. And it, it speaks to your motivations and mine, mine as well. Um, so now, um, I, I, I just to give some context to like where my background and kind of what the arc is in the world of customer experience management. At some point, if you've been in it for any while, any period of time, you know you have to get feedback from customers, and uh, the default tends to be using a survey platform of some kind, at least in the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and and some some companies, if you're too small or you have a preference to let someone else manage that for you, that's another option. But once usually once you reach a certain size, you want to kind of manage it. You may get some help, some self serve. But and then you're building out. Okay, what questions should I ask? So 
um, unless you're lucky enough to have someone like you who's an expert on surveys, you're relying on the vendor, you're you're relying like I did much on the vendor, but but a lot on trial and error, realizing the vendor didn't really have survey experts either. They had people who might have been in their customer service department who were following some script. So, and this is going to be a segue into my first question, which is uh, about the quality of the data, because you alluded to that and saying there was like a dearth of of really uh-huh. good survey information and kind of you there was a white space for you to fill. So what what is the problem with surveys? Well, okay, so most of the survey industry is really made up of software providers. So that's Medallia, that's Qualtrics, that's Alchemer, that's SurveyMonkey. They're software companies. And we need the software. We license of that list that I just rattled up. We license several of those, right? So you need the software. But um, I mean, not to be cliche, but the hammer doesn't build the house. Mm -hmm. Um, It's there's they're there to sell software. They're not there to do scientific surveys. That's not their jam. Nor should it be their jam. Their jam is to build great software, scale, scale, scale their solution, and that's that, you know, and they do super well. But um, you know, it just because you have the software doesn't mean that you have a great and you could have great software. It just doesn't mean that that therefore, ergo, you have a good survey. So you've got really like imagine like a great set of the best golf clubs ever made and then you've got someone like me and i pull out this callaway driver that's you know a gazillion dollars and i just hit my ball further into the woods right yeah and the difference there is you know what you didn't it's so what you kind of maybe wasted your saturday morning or you weren't very impressive out there on the golf course but in the case of companies you're actually wasting people's time like yeah. you're wasting management's time. I'd, I'd also argue you're wasting your customer's time. You ask silly questions, you know, the old 1980s maxim, bad, bad data in, bad data out. You know, it's like, well, you ask a silly question, you get a silly answer. Um, here, I mean, a good example of that is all too often, it seems like banks are particularly prone to this where they ask like, how was your, um, how was your interaction with Mickey Joe? Right, rate Mickey Joe on a on a scale of one to ten. Let's make sure we bring that up again. I don't like that one to ten scale. That's not a good scale. Um, so rate Mickey Joe on a scale of one to ten. Well, you know what, Mickey Joe was just totally fine. Mickey Joe was courteous. They tried to get get the problem solved. But the bank had a terrible process. So now what do I do? Do I say Mickey Joe was bad? Because uh, do I, well, probably what happens is I just don't take the survey, right? Like nine, 99% of people, they see that, but they're just like, look, I don't want to create a fuss. I don't want to get Mickey Joe in trouble. It was the right. bank that was wrong and their process that's wrong. So I'm just not going to take the survey. Okay. Then there are people who are going to take the survey and say, Mickey Joe was terrible, but Mickey Joe wasn't terrible. It was the bank that had the bad process. So I guess it's just sort of a, a very quick snapshot of a question that is, is asked in a, it's asked poorly. It's conflating two issues, right? 
It's conflating uh, rate Mickey Joe. Well, you're conflating the process with the rep themselves, right? So that there, therein you get bad data. So, so you're leading, you're leading into this question of how is scientific research different than typical surveying? Right. Okay. So there, I would say there are three things. One is sort of borderline on the science. And so I'll bring that up first, but it's borderline on the science. So the first characteristic of a scientific survey is that it really is interesting and engaging. So do you know how, how, do you ever feel like these surveys, they're all asking the same questions, Mm -hmm. you know, you're just like, Oh my God, if I see that question again, I think I'm going to shoot myself. (laughs) Um, So like, so is, and the reason it's important to be interesting and engaging with your questions is that you're more likely to get a better response rate and a better completion rate. And in general, the more responses you have, the more representative your data is. So now that's an interesting one where it's like borderlines that like, oh, we're just saying may be interesting and engaging, but it actually does touch on some science aspects of survey design. But oh, by the way, don't you want to be interested and engaging with your customers? Again, they're taking their time to answer your questions. Make them good questions. Make them thoughtful questions. So that's one aspect. Um, The second aspect is that the questions are asked in a neutral way, aka not leading. Um, And the third way a survey becomes a, a true scientific instrument is that it's gathering representative data. So it's not just from very old people with lots of time on their hands or your most unprofitable customers who are, you know, I don't know, just taking care of the kids all day, you know, whatever it is that you're hearing from all of your customers evenly or as evenly as possible and not just some kind of pocket of people who have time in their hands for whatever reason they have time in their hands or they're angry about you. Right. Or what I'm seeing more and more, it's tip for tat, right? Oh, you're just hearing from customers who had a great experience and they want to say thank you. In fact, more and more surveys are doing uh, doing that. Actually, it's a a podcast phenom. If you feel like this was um, a great podcast, if you want to give us a review, if you think this was a five star podcast, right? It's like very much steering toward if you have five stars to give, we want to hear it, right? So, um, so yeah, you're hearing sometimes from this like tip for tat, like I want to say thank you. And I've done surveys just for that reason. Like I actually got good customer service. So I, I want to say thank you. That's how I'm saying thank you. Right. Or there you're just so unbelievably angry. And you'll see that in survey responses. Don't ask me these questions. Call me. If you really care, call me. You know, so that's like a way that the customer is trying to communicate back. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's a little bit about the setup of what a science survey is. Again, it's like engaging enough to get response and, um, you're getting even response and you're asking questions in a, in a neutral, non-leading way. Okay. So that's really, that's really helpful and interesting, uh, the way you define those three, three differences. And I want to, I want to go back to the first one you mentioned, which was interesting and engaging, which makes perfect sense. I mean, you want people totally tuned in when they're taking that survey. We want we don't want to have a fall off rate, a drop off rate. We want them complete. Um, we want 
we want to develop a relationship with the people uh, who we're, we're serving because we really would like them to, if we ask them again, we want them to fill it out again. Right. At some point in the future. So we want to make it the, what would you say, because I've heard this many time in, in the executive boardroom is we want benchmarks. So, mm-hmm. so if you, if you, as you mentioned earlier, the, uh, the interesting engaging could at times go in direct conflict with we want benchmarks. Right, right. What well, would you say? Well, okay. You can always have, say you have a seven question survey. Mm-hmm. One question could be something um, that's comparative to the AXI score or NPS score. So one of your questions maybe is like the question you see everywhere, but six of your questions were really damned interesting. Um, do you want an example of an interesting question? Please. Okay. Um, so th- this is a, a question that always gets lots of really good response, by which I mean it's specific and actionable and gets the boardroom thinking like, oh, okay, maybe we should be doing blah, blah, blah. So the prior question asks, who's, who's our, our competitor who you're most familiar with, right? And then, and then you have a list including others. So say Bank of America, Chase, uh, Wells Fargo. Okay, who, who's, our, who's the com- competitor you're most familiar with? Probably the, the not next, Silicon Valley. It, it was Silicon Valley Bank, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and you're in a, it is not necessarily the very next question, but in a subsequent question, you pipe that, that most familiar competitor name into the question and say something like, um, you know, given the supply chain woes the world is experiencing now, how are we doing compared to, and you pipe in, Chase Manhattan, I still call it Chase Manhattan, it, Chase J.P. Morgan, uh, Wells Fargo. How are we doing compared to this competitor? Or tell it, or maybe the question is, uh, tell us some ways that, and this is interesting because it's a little bit leading, tell us some ways that, and you've piped in, say, Bank of America is doing things better than Wells Fargo, say say the client is Wells Fargo. Um. Now, that's interesting to dissect because we're actually leading the customer, right? Tell us some ways that Bank of America is better than Wells Fargo. Now, what's good is it's very specific. It really gets the mind thinking. It was leading insofar as you're assuming the Bank of of America is doing something better than Wells Fargo. But it's a good kind of leading insofar as it really opens the mind up. Does Bank of America do anything better? Yes, no, I don't know. I'm not that engaged. But tell us what Bank of America is doing better than Wells Fargo is 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 in that category of it's a more provocative question, right? There's a little bit of logic embedded. It's not complex. And yet we rarely see, except in the surveys we do for clients, we rarely see that that kind of a question. And yet, yeah, I mean, you can see how valuable that is. Like, that's what you want to know. Every company is trying to take over more market share, right? Right. That's the name of the game. And so what could be more interesting and important than like, who's like, no company's an island. Every company has competitors. Who's the one you're most familiar with? Tell us about them. Like, what are they doing well? You know? 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting you use the banking anal- analogy or, or illustration because um, it, it, one thing is true in banking is that uh, very, very few businesses have only one bank they deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the idea that um, they could switch easily, um, you, you know, switching is painful in banking, but they don't put their all eggs, eggs, all their eggs in one basket because of a variety of reasons. But that that's a, that comparative thing is something that um, I think would be uh, near and dear to their hearts because they're constantly evaluating and assessing their current bank, and especially if um, if they're struggling for any reason. They're really starting to think about switching, but I want to go back. I want to go back mm-hmm. to something you, that you, the way you you came up with these questions in your head, makes me ask the question. And I, I wonder if the, some of the listeners are thinking the same question, which is, you know, to what degree is it art versus science? Mm. Well, I, you know, the the conventional answer is everything is always a mix of art and science. Um, but but I would tend to think in most customer experience programs like the ones we do, which are based on research, it's really more about science. You know, I mean, there's there's an art in, in so far as there's it's like too broad a sense of art. It's like, well, there's having experience with doing these kinds of things, whether it's customer service evaluation or interviews you know, there's, there's, there's experiences worth a lot. Like you've done this hundreds of times and each time you learn more, but I think that's too vast a understanding of art, right? I think to me, art is something where, um, you know, everybody's having their own, there's the possibility of everybody having their own experience, right? Like Mm -hmm. you look at a painting and you see one thing and I look at that painting and I see another thing and that's sort of what art, the art in art is. I'm not an art major, so I don't really know. So I'm a little bit punting here. But um, but science is more where it's like it holds up. There's there it, it, the facts hold up to scrutiny, stringent scrutiny, and that's where I believe there is a place for art in customer experience in the designing of experiences, right? But in terms of getting facts about the customer experience, I really believe it should be held to a scientific standard, the standard of rigor. And, and, and you can make a cold, hard case for we, we didn't just get this. We didn't get this answer randomly. We got this answer and we can prove we get this answer nine out of 10 times. Yeah. Well, and that's a great segue to another question that that um that I'm thinking about, which is again in the in this in the C suite, and I've experienced this myself because I was one I was one of those people who had to go in there and make the case. And I think of for for customer experience efforts. And um and we would often as we started to collect more data as uh anyone moving toward a more mature CX practice in their organization is going to have more more access to data and at some point you go you cycle through and now you're comparing your own data against the previous period um, and it's becoming more more tangible to look at but then the question is I think a lot of the mistake um, mistake that that CX leaders and and people in other parts of the organization using data to go speak to the c-suite 
is they they share the metrics and then so MPS went up three points, MPS went down three points, OSAT went up three points, OSAT went down. So what? So the right. CE, C suite saying so okay. So what? How does that impact our 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 profitability or our other financial metrics? And what what do you want us to do about that? What what would you say to that? Like how do you how do you think about surveys and the the whole beginning to end of surveys? Well, I th- I think um, first of all, that was just a huge question that has so many little parts and pieces in it. So I'll Sorry, just take out. No, no, that's okay. I love it. I'll just take out a couple of them. Um, there there are two levels basically to the so what. One is was it statistically relevant? Um, you know, okay, your NPS went up two points. Well, is that statistically relevant or was that just ran- sheer random chance? Or, or unpacking it a little bit further, is it possible? Is it possible? May I ask, is it possible? There's so much pressure on the staff to get a good MPS that basically that was a gamed number, right? So, Gosh, my boyfriend the other day, I'm, I hope I can quote this. It was, so we have Providence Health, healthcare in our, um, in our area of the world. He had this interaction. Listen, this is just blows my mind. I should write a blog about this. This is just unbelievable. So he has this 20 minute interaction with a gal who ends with, so how, so how would you rate? So how would you rate me today or something like that? And Jay said, an eight. And she said, only an eight today? And he said, yeah, I'm good with that. I'll hold with an eight. Now, I think very few of us would cave. Like Most of us would have just caved and said, oh, yeah, it's 10. Nicole, sure, you're a 10. I was really impressed that Jay, like, stood up for, you know, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll hold with that eight. Most people wouldn't, I wouldn't even do that. I'd be like, yeah, fine. You're 10. Um, in fact, <laughs> most often, if somebody just asked me to my face, like, I don't want egg on my car. I don't want, yeah. I just think you're, you're, you're fine. You're a 10. I was like unpressed in two levels, but think about how bad that is. Ugh. Like that is just the worst data possible. It's totally gained. Total, yeah. On every level that she asked him, how how am I today? And then she said, only an eight. It just you, you can see I'm very, I, very passionate about this, that like companies really owe it to themselves to get better data than that. And this is a, you know, this is a huge Providence Healthcare. It's a huge hospital and insurance system. This isn't like Joe's corner store. This this is a healthcare system that impacts hundreds of thousands or millions of people. I you know it's huge. So they're um, anyway they're basing decisions on bad on example you know bad data. So it's like so what? So there's the first like well is it meaningful right? And then the next is so going back to like the so what? Okay, we went up a point. Well, is did you really go up a point? Is it really meaningful? And then. Well, more interesting is, so what are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do? Like the metric, that's sort of the the hammer or the golf club. It's not playing the game, right? It's just there as a as an indicator. It's right. It's a symbol and it's not the work in itself. 
it's the indicator. So it's, that's where, you know, most reputable companies are following up that NPS with um, something about, could you tell us a little bit, you know, doing a verbatim, an open-end question. Could you tell us more about, you know, why you assigned that, that score? Um, which sometimes can put the customer on a defensive, you know, like, because I've seen it worded in a way that it really was kind of like, well, I think I just won't answer that. You know, just it's putting the customer on the spot. So, um, so anyway, so what, well, well, so what, like first, how do we know for sure that our, our score went up and that we can rigorously, stringently prove this? And two, well, what actions are we going to take to keep that momentum? If, if it is true that we can keep the momentum going up or that we can reverse the tides and get us out of the funk and back into the good territory. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I've, I've been seeing more writing uh, on and different various places about how the CX leaders have failed to, to do a great job of, of doing just what you said is like, number one, getting accurate data, sharing the data in a way that get, that gives it some context and then at least recommendations for some action steps. Right. Right. I mean, I think some, some tools, I think the dashboard infographics can be helpful. Mm. I think meetings with the right players can be helpful mm -hmm. in terms of brainstorming. What can we do? I think getting really specific, like really thinking about the details. I find too many customer experience programs are overly broad and you really want to talk about what exactly. So we don't just do surveys. It is um, probably 85% of what we do, but we also do customer service evaluations, like still from our beginning, our, our beginning, that's we do customer service evaluation and we do it just about every day we're doing some kind of customer service evaluation. And I'll give you an example of like the kind of, of like one second that we might be listening for. It's something like, well, th thank you for being a XYZ customer at the end, like really owning that ending, right? Well, th Hey, thanks for being, we'll say it's bank of America. Thanks for being a bank of America customer. If things went well, now don't do that. If it was like a, a struggle kind of conversation and it ends with that pat kind of like perky, like, oh, how nauseating, right? So, yeah. but listening for, so it's like a certain ending, but then it's that ending in context. Like how did the interaction go that that was the right thing to say or the wrong thing to say? Because it might be, I am so sorry, Martha, that we couldn't solve this problem. I'm going to talk to my manager. I'll be back in touch with you within the hour. Well, is that is that going to be okay? Yes, that will be okay if you actually get back in touch with me within the hour. So in any event, it's all to say like listening for very specific both statements, but statements in certain contexts are what make for good customer experience programs as opposed to, or, you know, just very acting on very specific kinds of customer feedback as opposed to like, well, generally we want to have better customer service or generally we want to be more proactive. Well, what does that mean? And, and most staff need to see examples. You know, what do you mean? And show me examples. Otherwise it's just sort of like, uh, otherwise it's kind of arty, 
you know, it's like, well, it, it doesn't, it's just not, it's not stringent enough. It doesn't really have legs. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said about um, checking in with other team members or partners in the organization. I think of an example when more than one occasion where the numbers uh, really shifted, they spiked. One example would be um, in, in uh, for business customers, um, they, they went down, uh, net promoter score data went down over a period of time. And, um, and we, we, it was an unusual like dip. And so we went over to the people in that part of the world and we said, Hey, is there any changes that you guys had that would have potentially caused this? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, we had this double security logon instituted, um, and converted a whole bunch of people to this new password double protection thing. And um, we, we got a ton of calls in the call center and, and really nobody could, could go through it easily. So it created a lot of customer friction. So that became part of the story that we shared with leadership. Um, and there's a couple of lessons in there. One is that, you know, as much as you try and anticipate the change, um, you know, it's if you're bringing customers through a painful situation and, and you expect friction, you really need to prepare to mitigate that in all sorts of ways. And two is, you know, the data makes sense. The data that we got made perfect sense because of some of the things that were happening in the background. And does that speak to what you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great example. What I would hope for in that situation is that... Um, the reps didn't, that was a great example of the process was, was messed up. The reps were probably, if anything, extra good. They were like, I am so sorry this is happening, Martha, you know, because they don't want to have to manage these double password, new something, the customer can't get in. They don't want to deal with that. First of all, they don't want more calls and they don't want bitter customers who are, you know, pulling their hair out. Um, So, uh, so you would just hope that it's like, oh, refs, we understand it's not you. We're going to really double down on IT and really get this process smoothed out so you aren't taking these calls and so that our customers are happier. You know, so that it's kind of like the win-win. Win-win, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned something earlier um, um, about the scientific nature of the of of the research and and the way you approach things, and I've had, um, as you know, Rob Markey on the show before, and also Fred Reichelt, and those two guys were really the co creators of the Net Promoter Score. <clears throat> and as they talk about it and defend it to this day, they say it is not a perfect metric. It, it's basically asking the question, how, if, if you don't already know, how likely is it that you would recommend a friend or a colleague to this to your business? Um, and then there's a second question always is, what's the reason for your score? And people have, to your point earlier about gaming the system, you know, it just makes them sick because they're not using it the way it was intended. Um, I guess Callaway could say that about the way I play golf, but that's another story. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and um and so what they talk about is if you do the research the right way and both of them use this word if you do it the way that it's done in the medical world um real research not um not research that's done from the company out and i think what they mean by that is if you're wells fargo and you're surveying 
um, there's a there's a chance that you may not be as neutral and 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 design the questions and survey you know the right people the right time the right pool in in order to get real statistically neutral and factual responses so i want to come back to you and say you know does that resonate when it, when they're they're talking about this idea of the way it's done in the medical world what is that what what should yeah, our that, audience I, I love that so so that speaks to so there's it's a it's a subtle difference but it's a huge it's also a huge difference so when bain and company is doing the survey they can say pipe in wells fargo how is Wells Fargo? How would you rate Wells Fargo today? Right. That's right. different than Wells Fargo saying, how did we do today? How did we do today? So already the customer employee, whomever is taking that survey, right? They're thinking more objective. How did Wells Fargo do today? As opposed to it's coming, it's, it's looks cheap when it, when Wells Fargo sends out their own survey and, um, and they're asking about themselves. It just it looks cheap, and it's it's slightly subjective. So I think that's what they're talking about is like having that third party there to, on the one hand, ask the question so that it comes across objectively, but on the other hand, to just to just coat the whole process in it's a third party. It's not what's that expression? The fox watching the hen house. You know, it's not yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's like. Because Bain doesn't care, just like we interaction metrics, we don't care mm. whether you know you're giving it a seven or an eight or a ten, right? We don't care. What we care about is we're collecting good data. We're not Wells Fargo. We're not there to. We're just there to present the data. So I think that's what they're talking about is that this is like true research, not just like this sort of like it's not a game. It's like methodical. It's executed in. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Bain people, the Fred, the Rob Markey people, they are, they're just apoplectic when they go into a Target and that cashier says, you know, do my net promoter, you know, would you recommend me today? You know, I'm sure they're just like uh, pulling their hair out over that, right? It's like you have bastardized our system. Yeah, it, it is. It is so true. And then, you know, um, what the way Rob describes it is it is it is not a perfect system. In fact, some would argue that it's far from perfect. And I would say they're right um, until you compare it to the next best thing. Right. 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 But but you're right. I'm sure there's a defibrillator somewhere in there. <laughs> as they're getting ready to check out and they get asked that question. I mean, it's so um oh, feels like gaming yeah no that's exactly what it is so um so i think so net promoter is an interesting question um i can't wait to talk to rob about it with cxpa right so yeah. i'm interviewing him i think it's may 4th um in our b2b roundtable group so that will be really fun i think um I think there's some probably exactly what Rob would say, but he'd say it better because he's the inventor. But there are pros and cons to the question. One con that I point out about the question is, and this is a little bit nerdy, but hang in there with me. It <laughs> assumes it's leading. It assumes 
the customer, the user, the prospect, the employee is somewhat satisfied. How satisfied, you know, how, or, or they, it assumes that the customer is somewhat likely to recommend. How likely are you to recommend us to a friend or colleague? Zero to 10. How likely are you to recommend it? It assumes you're somewhat likely. It's the same thing with the, the satisfaction question. How satisfied were you on a scale? That's usually how satisfied were you on a scale of one to 10? It assumes that it assumes the customer is somewhat satisfied. Yeah. Right. So there is a workaround on that, but um, the, you know, it's just to say, and, and I'm the first to say there are uses for leading questions too, right? Remember I said, sometimes you want to pipe in the competitor's name and say, what did they do better? So, um, I, you know, it, it, it's all to say um, it's complex. They're complexities. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of the complexity, I mean, that's, that makes it sense as to why you would bring an expert like you and interactive metrics in to help to help companies get what I what I like to refer to as actionable data to make data driven decisions right for, right for their business right and so uh, what occurred to me was like I, I'm just curious uh, more than anything else this is not to necessarily <laughs> to pl- plug your business but I'm curious as to what would tr- what what kind of things typically and there may not be a typical but what kind of things are typically trigger a, a company to call you in to do to research the way you do it. Oh, it's almost always starts with we have a survey, but we're just not sure it's that good. Would you take a look? Mm. Absolutely, happy to. If it's if it's in good shape, we'll tell you. And if it has room to be improved, we'll tell you that too. So, but it almost always starts with it's very rare that we work with a company that doesn't have some kind of measurement in place, but they have this sort of, they just, they're just kind of wondering. And it always sounds like that, Mark. Well, we're just kind of wondering if we're asking the right questions in the right way. We're just not that sure. Or sometimes they'll say, you know, we're pretty happy with our survey, but is there something wrong? Because we never like really take any action out of it. Like it just seems to be like this, this box that we check off. So it, 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 it's almost always like that. And now the, then the way the conversation goes is, well, tell me more about what you are looking to find out. Are you looking to measure customer service? Are you looking to measure uh, supply chain prowess? Are you looking to measure the end-to-end experience, the repairs, the tech support? What are you looking to know about when it comes to customer experience? And sometimes the survey isn't the answer. You know, sometimes, yeah. it, or sometimes it's part of the answer. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's the survey is exactly the right answer, but their hunch is correct that there is just not that what they have is not that good. Yeah. And um, is it, I'm just curious, it may not be, but is it, is it because they're questioning the survey itself because something else is going on? with either a bad experience somewhere or, you know, d- data they're getting back that's either anecdotal or verbatim comments or something that's saying, hmm, you know, our surveys are saying our customers are pretty happy, but I keep hearing this same issue over here in this department. Is, is something like that triggering them to question their the quality of their survey? Sometimes there's, sometimes they're really smart people 
Mm-hmm. And they are wondering, kind of going back to the Rob and Fred remark, they're kind of wondering, are we treating this like medicine? Are, are we evidence-based mm-hmm. here? Are we do really doing the best job possible? Or did we just cut and paste some questions out of the Qualtrics platform and give it a go? And so they're looking for, they're like, huh, we just kind of, we're, we're wondering. And it's often that kind of uh, smart people sitting around a table asking smart questions, which is a lot of like, huh, do we know this? How do we know this? Do we know this for sure? What can we, you know, really, huh? And why, why are we getting that? And what can we do about it? You know, so that the, the curiosity. Yeah. And Martha, do you, do you and your organization tend to own and manage the survey process? Um, or do you tend to uh, like empower your clients to do it themselves or both? Both, but much more often we were end to end. You okay. know, it's okay. occasionally we're called in to just, would you just do, we, we collected all the data, da, 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 da. would you just do the text analysis? Sure. And we start with AI tools, which get us 10% of the way there. And then we put our researchers on it. So, um, and by the way, interaction metrics, it's, um, I'm the program director and I have a small staff of analysts who work for me. So that's like to give it the picture of where this, we're a boutique, what we call it, you know, a boutique agency doing this, you know, really specialized thing. And again, we're licensing the software. So there's a, yeah, there's, sometimes it's a sheer cost advantage to work with a company like ours. Since we're always already licensing Qualtrics and Alchemer and Power BI and different software platforms. So we already are paying for that. And then we just, you know, pass that on to our clients. So that's just our cost of doing business. So if you're our client, you don't have to go out and get a license to Qualtrics. So, um, so usually we're end to end, but occasionally we're just called in to do, could you write our verbatim questions? Could you do just the verbatim analysis? Could you write just our survey? So, you know, sometimes we're just kind of coming in to do those, uh, a few little pieces and sometimes, and much more often it's like, well, we really need to an end to end solution. Soup to, soup to nuts, as they used to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, a lot of companies say they put customers first, <clears throat> they're customer centric, but then maybe that when the rubber meets the road, they're not really doing that. Right, right. <laughs> um, well, just a hats off to Bain and Fred and Rob. You know, one thing I think that is really great that came out of MPS is it did get more of a conversation going about customer experience for sure. For sure. I, I don't, I think wasn't that article in HBR published in 2002 and it's yeah. just lived on and on. And I think really was the first article, well, the Pine and Gilmore book in 2000, the experience economy got some people thinking about um, experience, but maybe more in it, the art way. And then when, um, when that article in 2002, I think it was 2002, uh, 2003 came out, uh, the one number you need to know, I think yeah. it got it got people thinking a little bit more rigorously about measuring, right, the customer experience. And so that's been just huge. So 
Um, when Rob Markey says, well, there's, you know, it's not a perfect system, they're positive and negatives, I'd say the net net is like, wow, you got more people thinking about customer experience. And that is a, a that's a great thing because going back to like where we were what we were talking about in the, the beginning, you know, nice that I uncovered a hole in the market, but more importantly, moral imperative to provide these great experiences. Yeah. Yeah, so true. So true. Um, well, we our time together is winding down, unfortunately, but I do have one last question for sure. you. And then I'll get some contact info is um, if you think about yourself, uh, what would you say to your 20 year younger self? Oh, I like that question. Um, well, the, uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things that, you know, rear view mirror, I would change. But the fact is, it never, like no 20-year-old, my 20-year-old self wouldn't have listened. You have to have the experiences. You have to have failure, which is an incredible data stream. You have to have success, which is also kind of a good data stream, probably not as robust a data stream as failure. Um, but you, you kind of have to have the experiences. I just don't know that I just don't know that a 20-year-old Martha or 20-year-old Mark would have listened to us. They would have been like, uh-huh, sure, I know better. And yeah. I just think life is about accumulating these experiences and trying to be as aware as possible so that we can learn from our experiences and and evolve our lives. But yeah, I um, love the question, but have to say, I, I wouldn't have been a, I, I wouldn't have been a good audience for the question at age twenty. Wouldn't have listened. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, back twenty years ago, I was pretty hard headed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and some would say I still am. Well, um, so you said, like going back ten years, what would you change? And it's like, no, you know, you really had to have the experiences that happened in those ten years. Like you, you just it's there's just nothing like experience reflection experience reflection and that's really yeah so but I, I do like the question because it's interesting to think of like well what could you know which direction there are myriad directions you know which direction could I have gone but it's all very hypothetical I had to go in the direction I went in yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like um, in one way you could say, based on what you just said, that um, we, we're going to be going through these trials. And when we're going through them, it just feels like the worst thing in the world. It feels horrible. But if upon reflection, you could look back and say, actually, it makes you better. It makes you stronger and it helps you become the person that you are today. Right. I, I agree. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Well, excellent, fun conversation, different. You are so, uh, so wise, <laughs> so much experience. And I thank you. I, I, um, I, I wonder if our listeners would like to get a hold of you, what might be the best way they could reach you? Sure. So it's interaction, like we're having an interaction metrics. Yes. So you just Google on that interaction metrics. And um, we come up to the top of Google on that, or Google and Martha Brooke. It's with an E at the end, B-R-O-O-K-E. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't do that much on LinkedIn. But uh, you can certainly send me a, a an invite. Um, our phone number is on our website. Uh, contact info on our website. Um, it's Martha B at Interaction Metrics. I don't use social media. 
Um, we could have a conversation, a whole other conversation about that um, and uh, wise uses of time. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd say Google and interaction metrics, Google and me, fill out the contact form, send an email, send a pajama gram, whatever you like. Um, I'm <laughs> truly av available to the discussion. I'm tr truly interested in customer experience and I'm truly interested in surveys. And, and um, when I said, you know, we, we sometimes the conversation starts with, well, let's take a look at the survey you have. If send, send you know, feel free to send me your survey and either I or one of my analysts will look at it. And if it's good, we'll tell you. And if it's got room to be improved, we'll tell you. Well, there you go. We can't ask for more than that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Martha. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great to get to know you and what a wonderful conversation. Yeah. And thank you, Mark. Um, I look forward to the next. You got it. Okay. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.